I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Now, my guest today is the broadcaster, novelist, and journalist, Gavin Esler. His career with the BBC included the decade anchoring Newsnight, prompting the Financial Times to note that Gavin understands the political beast better than anyone. It's an understanding that has focused his thinking on the power of storytelling in public life, the who we are, and the where are we going. And it has been the ability to provide answers to these questions that explains the success of names like Thatcher, Reagan, Clinton, and Blair. Gavin, welcome to Changemakers. Let's start with with the storytelling. What, What makes a good story? Well, I think what makes a good story is the recognition that we are all storytellers, whether you like it or not. You tell a story when you go on a date, you tell a story when you apply for a job, you tell a story when you meet a stranger. And the stories, the ones that work, always begin with who you are. So when I wrote a book a few years ago called Lessons from the Top, it was based on some of the best storytellers I'd met in business, some of them, but also Bill Clinton, Tony Blair, Mrs. Thatcher, (laughs) Angela Merkel, and so on. And what I realized when I thought about how they connected with people, including myself, when, when you first meet these people, how do they do it? And they tell three basic stories. Who am I as a person? Who are we as a group? Or political party or whatever it is and where are we going with this where am i where's my leadership going to take us and it, one of my contentions in the book is if you don't buy into the first bit of the story who they are you're never going to listen to where the leadership's going to take you so mrs thatcher is a great example she she constantly said i'm just the grocer's daughter from grantham and then eventually she said she was the iron lady when she wanted to tell a, a, a different story but a grocer's daughter not very posh a daughter not a son and from grantham not part of the metropolitan elite that was exactly the story that won her the 1979 election mm. and once you connected to that she, that was only part of who she was it wasn't a phony story it was true but it was only a little bit of it and bill clinton did something similar when he said i'm just the boy from hope when i when i first met him and then when i eventually went down to arkansas to to make a film about him when he was running for president i realized i went to hope arkansas and some of the folks there said oh yeah bill clinton yeah he he is from here but mm. you know he spent most of his time in hot springs which is a gambling town just up the road <laughs> but I, I mean, that, well, exactly, and the rest is history. But I mean, is it the case though that 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 part of that that storytelling power is the you've got to believe it, you've got to be authentic about it. So even even if you are more than the greengrocer's daughter from Grantham or or the boy from Hope, that you've still got to anchor some level of belief there for it to actually work as a story, or 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 can you just decide? right, this is where I start once upon a time, and that's the story I'm going to tell. I mean, why, why do they tell the stories they tell, do you think? I think they tell the stories they tell without actually thinking about it, first of all, but then they realise that this is, the, the ones who get to the top, that this is a sort of marketable thing. And for instance, Angela Merkel is a great example. You know, she's in Germany, she's sometimes called Mutti, yeah, Mutti. mummy. Yeah. One of the things about her is she actually is her story. I mean, she she is a very, very intelligent woman. She is actually has got a very wry sense of humor, <laughs> but she lives very modestly. And that goes down well in, in, in Germany. When I first when I first learned German, I remember the first exercise from my German teacher was a series of adjectives. And there were words like Spatzam, Toy, Zauber. Uh, and they're all kind of um, you know, thrifty, uh, you know, truthful. Uh, uh, <laughs> anyway, sober, I suppose one would say. They're all things that you could say about Angela Merkel. And she mm. is like that. So she does live it. When when other people uh, sometimes the story collides or they don't actually tell 
tell it very well, and that that causes problems. And of course, we tell stories about people too. We're telling stories about Boris Johnson right now. Some of them are not the best of stories. So, is, is he is he a good storyteller, Gavin? Well, it works. It works with some people. I mean, you know, the the kind of I have to declare an interest here, which is that uh, I did classics at school, and I often think that people who quote Latin are not that bright. Sorry, uh, because it's a dead language. You know, if they quoted Arabic or Chinese or something, I would think it was great. But I, you know, I can quote "Una salus victis nullam sparare salutem, yam samos alaiva furant naxusque relicta," and I know what it means, and it's not that interesting, and it's not that difficult because it's a dead language. So well, I have a, I have a, pro- I have a number of problems with uh, uh, Boris Johnson's story, and just one of them is that when you quote Latin, you're not always that smart. Well, look, you've quoted German. And Latin. So let's talk about Gavin's story, because it strikes me that this is the tale of two cities. There's the Glasgow Gavin and the Edinburgh Gavin in terms of those early years. What's the story you tell about yourself? Uh, well, I was I was born in Glasgow in a, a council. I was born in Clyde Bank, actually, which is uh, just on the outskirts of Glasgow. Shipyard, uh, shipyards all closed. Singer's sewing machine factory is gone. And I was born into a council house with uh, two aunties, my grandmother and my mum and dad. And then by uh, a few years later, we moved to Edinburgh and I got a scholarship to a, a really good school uh, called Harriet's, uh, who were wonderful to me. I uh, got a series of bursaries and then was the first member of my family to go to university. So that's that's my that's my who am I story. I'm not the grossest daughter from Grantham, but... <laughs> but, but, I, but, I, but I suppose... In the Who Am I story, you've got this, you know, sort of really interesting starting story. My wife's from Paisley and exactly where where you were where, where you were brought up. And in terms of your sense of self, in terms of the kind of vital ingredients of your own storytelling and, and sense of self, what, what do you think it's given you in terms of the Gavin today, those early years? Well, you know, this we're we're on something called change makers, and one of the things that strikes me as most obvious is that you can actually change things for yourself. But the key thing, because I'm now Chancellor of the University of Kent, and the key thing it seems to me is you have to have hope and you have to have people around you who think it is possible to live a better life than than the one you're living. And my parents were like that. So, and that's not being in any political party or anything. It's just having a mindset. And what I notice when we talk about poverty in the United Kingdom, which is is actually a real problem. I mean, we really do have, uh, the, the words leveling up are just sort of vacuous. That We have a serious problem with poverty and health, poverty of expectation. And it's the poverty of expectation that I try to, in my little way as chancellor, to do something about trying to, for example, we try to invite some children's authors down to the university to do in conversation with me. So we get a lot of kids in pre- who, who really like these authors and who come in from areas where, like my family, nobody had ever been to university before. Mm. Uh, and I'm not saying university is right for everybody, but I'm, I am saying that having a kind of expectation that we can do better or we can get on or there's a way of, of making our life better. I think that's really important to me. But 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 also the power of words because you know you you've described leveling up as vacuous but but similarly you also there are there are other phrases like we talked about the greengrocer's daughter where there's an effect one I mean they both affect you in in the same way that there is something about the storytelling and the narrative that goes with it in terms of the reaction that you get 
Yes, that, that is absolutely true. And that's why Bill Clinton was the boy from Hope, because Hope is obviously a lovely name for, for, for a small town in Arkansas. But he also suggested that he was a boy from actually a very underprivileged background. Uh, he had a stepfather. Uh, he didn't entirely get on with him. And his, his personal story is true. And he got he's a very, very, very bright guy. And so... Uh, I think people people absolutely connect with stories, but they also tell stories about others. So mm. we tell stories about, to, to return to the prime minister, I mean, it, there's some who see him as a sort of cross between a toff and a slob, to be honest, uh, because he speaks in a particular way, but he looks in a different way. And some find that attractive and some just sort of think it's a bit ridiculous. He's going to love this. I'm sure he's going to love this episode, Gavin. Uh, he, he, <laughs> well, 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 I mean, frankly, if you had a Bullingdon Club bore mating with Wurzel Gummidge, you would probably get something like that, if you can imagine that. So another thing that seems to be part of the vital ingredients is this commitment to happiness. This seems to be, so when you read about you, you talk about relationships, not transactions. It's the only life you're ever going to have. So you, you should try and be happy. Is that because the accumulation of good memories is actually a part of your own life story and a part of your own, I guess, view of yourself. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, I think uh, I think in many ways I've been very, very fortunate uh, and I have got a, a lot of good memories and I've, you know, I've travelled and worked in every continent on Earth except Antarctica and I'm quite happy not to bother going to Antarctica, to be honest. It, was, it wasn't top of my to-do list. I'd rather... I'd rather go to Spain, frankly. Take, take your thermals. <laughs> take my thermals. Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, exact, exactly. And if there was a, there was a, I won't, I won't say where it was, but there was a small town in Scotland where it had been a mining area. And I went a few times to talk to uh, kids there, teenagers there, because that was what struck me that many of them thought their parents, their fathers had worked in the mines, there was nothing to do, um, how, how could they better themselves? And I just think, to, when I said, when I told them about my background uh, from Clyde Bank, they were sort of amazed actually, you know, just because they had never thought, they thought that, um, that to be in the BBC, you had to be a certain type of mm. person and you had to have gone to Oxford or Cambridge and you had to have gone to, and since I hadn't, um, there was a degree of connection. Now, whether that changed anybody's life, I don't, I don't know. But, mm. but I thought it was something that it could put back. Well, I want to I go on to the BBC in a minute, but in my efforts to deconstruct Gavin, I want to introduce a third theme. So we've, we've talked about storytelling and happiness. What about stubbornness? I, I understand <laughs> the family name translates as donkey in German. Is that right? <laughs> well, yeah, well, yeah, it does. Uh, my, my family, in the, basically my family in the 17th century uh, were uh, Eselers, and Esel is donkey in German, and they came from Nuremberg uh, in, in Bavaria, the religious wars of the 17th century. They were Protestants, presumably Lutheran, but I suspect they might have been actually Calvinists. Because anyway, they ended up north, north Germany, met the Scottish army, came and settled in Scotland, and some of them settled in Northern Ireland. Now, so I am uh, Ulster Scots is my kind of designation, I suppose. And Ulster Scots are utterly charming people. We honestly are, but we are as stubborn as donkeys. Actually, I think we mules, mule, I, I don't know. Anyway, there's two Scottish words are thrown and scunnered. And thrown means 
uh, as an Ulster Scots word too, it just means very stubborn. And scunnered means sickened. When you get sickened mm. by something, and that, actually that is that was the motivation of my most recent book, which is about the future of the United Kingdom, called How Britain Ends. And part of it was because my roots are in Northern Ireland and in Scotland. I lived in Wales for a while, and I now live very happily in England. I kept thinking to myself, who is it who tells a story about the United Kingdom? Mm. Who is it in English politics, the biggest part and the most important part of the union, who seems to regard it as important at the as the union stays together. And I am very stubborn and thrown about this because I think there isn't anybody who falls into that category. Well, we'll, g- we'll go on to the book, but how did that stubbornness serve you? Because I mean, you had almost 40 years at the BBC in, in various sort of gigs. In terms of actually your career through it, were those character traits that really helped navigate a career to the top in broadcasting? Well, they, they, they do in a way. I mean, I found... but they were okay in the sense that I always particularly wanted to get the stories that I wanted to get and I wanted to do the interviews and I was very happy to listen to have to have mentors at the BBC including Charles Wheeler was one of them great great broadcaster and John Tusa was another these really really great broadcasters but I was also quite happy to get to Washington because I'd worked as a foreign correspondent in lots and lots of places Um, you know I've worked I've been in Australia and China and all over Latin America. And I really wanted to be in the United States. And I spent I spent nearly a decade actually living there and then quite a few years on either side going there because when you were there or when I was in Northern Ireland, you were actually quite independent. There were, remained a BBC structure, but in Northern Ireland, people in the BBC in London in particular were terrified about Northern Ireland because they didn't really understand it. How on earth do these people get on with each other? But they do get on with each other, I used to say, most of the time. And then sometimes they kill each other. Mm. And I can't, you know, and I will try and explain this to you. And and it doesn't mean to say that one side is good and what the other side is bad. They both got reasons for being the way they are. And so I got I had a degree of independence, which I, I loved. And the BBC was really good to me, actually. Mm. When you think back on it, institutionally in terms of what it was I mean it strikes me a lot of people have a kind of Marmite reaction that they either loved it it was kind of the making of them it was culturally institutionally important or they found it quite difficult quite stifling quite you know there there seems to be you never get a kind of it was just an average experience are you going to be the 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 one that breaks the mold on that how how will you remember the BBC as as a story if you like in your own mind oh the BBC I mean you know the BBC like any great institutions has got its problems and the reason why it has so many problems is it's so important in our lives so if it wasn't important we wouldn't uh, be arguing about it all the time and it should be doing this or it didn't do that well enough or or whatever but I you know I think I think it is a a a truly great institution. And there are very few truly great British institutions at the moment, it seems to mm. me, um, including Parliament, uh, is not one of the great institutions. And so we, we've got many, many, uh, we've got many, many problems. And the BBC has got problems too. But I think they pale into insignificance compared to some of the others. I mean, you, you, you talk about the problems of, of Parliament. Yeah, of course, you decided for a big career change and stood stood as a candidate for Change UK as an MEP. Was there always something when you were sort of the other side of the of the desk in terms of the interviews where you just thought, I could do this, I want to do this? Or, or, or was this quite a, a late conversion to the idea that actually you might well not just ask the questions, but try and provide the answers? 
No, no. And in fact, it wasn't even a, it wasn't an attempt at a career change. I did. I wanted to win as a Change UK candidate in the European elections, but I did not want to do the job because what I wanted to do was to say that Brexit is one of the stupidest things that we have ever done to ourselves. It will result in the United Kingdom possibly falling apart because it's already drifting apart and the different parts of the UK voted in different ways ways on that i was not <laughs> well we got 117,500 votes in london so i thank all those good people who voted for it because i thought the whole point was of joining a political party which didn't really exist as a political mm. party so unlike any of the other political parties the main ones i didn't have to apologize for all the messes that we'd made in the past so was so was this the kind of martin bell speak truth unto power type moment in your own life in terms of your own reasons for doing it yeah, it was, it was exactly that. It was saying, look, we're all going along with this, what is going to be a shambles. And when we got to the words, get Brexit done, which is another thing, I would just ask you, has it been done? And it's not been done. <laughs> of course it's not. Where six months after having the Brexit um, deal, which uh, Lord Frost declared as excellent, I now realise that he misspoke and he really meant excrement because the same deal that he he came up with, he's now trying to rewrite after six months. I mean, you know, you, you wouldn't, even if you bought a Duff car, you wouldn't necessarily go off it within six months because you're kind mm. of stuck with that. That was your judgment. And he's now kind of pretending that it was, it was all these other people. It was the big boys who made me do it. I can't, I just can't tell you how sad I am that this great country, which is sorry, but this great country has got so many talented people in every field of human endeavor from science and the arts and culture and business who change things, who bring about change and they don't quite appear in the top of our political so, system. So you'll have to forgive me, Gavin, for asking the question, but it seems to me that when you read about a lot of your views is that you're quite grumpy about a lot of things. So whether it's the state of parliament, the state of leadership, the, the, the kind of the rise of fake news, probably are lots of things to have good reasons to be grumpy about. But do, you, do, but do you think that just goes with the territory of experience and change and seeing police officers getting younger every year? I mean, is that, is that, is that what happens when you get older, do you think? Or is it just genuinely as parlous as you think? Or uh, is it no, it's genuinely as parlous as I think. I mean, the, re the, reason, the reason I wrote the new book, How Britain Ends, is because in 2015, the four different parts of the United mm. Kingdom voted for four different political parties. Scotland's biggest party was the SNP, biggest party in Northern Ireland is the DUP, biggest party in Wales is Labour, biggest party in England is uh, the Conservatives, and they formed the government. And that just struck me, that was 2015, before the Brexit vote, that the tectonic plates of our country are moving apart. That's not being, that's not being grumpy, that's just being observant. And what strikes me about Westminster, which is less true in the parliaments in Cardiff, Belfast and, and Edinburgh, is the utter complacency about this, that it doesn't even appear on their radar. And again, that's not that's not growing old. How Britain ends isn't a recommendation. It's an observation that we are drifting apart and we all know it. Uh, but certain people don't admit it, which I think is a shame because you mm. can't fix things that you don't recognise. Does, does the pandemic change any of your thoughts for the book in terms of keeping us together or not? Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, I, I refer to the pandemic in the book as being the biggest surprise is that something which should have brought us together has actually pulled us further apart in various ways. For example, 
the administrations in Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales did things at differently at a different time, at a different pace from the Westminster government. So they asserted a degree of independence. We've had the great cities of Northern England with mayors like Andy Burnham saying, it's not going well for us. We need to do things a bit differently. Mm. So it absolutely plays into the theme of the book, which is if you want Britain to continue, we have to change it and we have to give more power, particularly to big English cities, because uh, one of the stories about the United Kingdom since 1979 is that local government has been bled of resources and people feel, people in England, many of them feel there's a democratic deficit. Just to give mm. you one other example, 3.8 million people voted for UKIP in 2015. They got one MP, Douglas Carswell, who then quit the party. So they got nothing. So they wanted to change things. I disagreed with what they wanted, but they wanted to change things and they got nothing. So to have a modern Western democracy, which nearly 4 million people vote for something and get nothing is absolutely a democratic deficit. And so there's, and, and people know there's something wrong. They're well aware of it. How would you put that dem- democratic deficit here within a global context? Because I mean, presumably you would, you would see that this is happening in a lot of places, in a lot of countries, that there is, there is changes afoot that um, traditional ways of doing things are, are, are very much under pressure. Well, that's certainly true. And it was certainly true in Trump's America. But the difference in Trump's America is you have got, first of all, you've got a constitution, which has got all its problems, but it is at least a kind of roadmap. You know how things go. And just to give you one example about that, when Trump was sick with coronavirus, we knew what would happen. The vice president does the job. Part of the thing I say in the book is when Boris Johnson was sick with coronavirus, what happens? Oh, it's Dominic Raab. Why is it Dominic Raab? Why? And what, what are his powers? So if you listen to Radio 4 in the morning, I listened to many, many learned interviews with constitutional experts, which went as follows. Why is it Dominic Rabb? Well, we think it's because the prime minister probably chose him. So what are his powers? Well, uh, we don't exactly know. Well, is he really the prime minister? No, he's not the prime minister. So could he declare war on Russia? Well, no, he wouldn't do that. Well, how do you? Well, he he, he wouldn't do that because he's basically a good chap. Now, all of that might be true. Well, the, the ultimate stress test of the unwritten constitution. Exactly. <laughs> and I just I just thought uh, I, I was write, uh, writing the book at the time, and I was thinking, this is nuts. You know, British experts have written constitutions, according to the historian Lyndia Colley, for 70 countries around the world. Mm. Uh, we haven't got one for ourselves because, as Lord Macaulay said in the 19th century, a written constitution is like paper money, whereas an unwritten constitution is pure gold. Well, <laughs> we don't pay with pure, pure gold anymore. We're even in the age of plastic and Bitcoin. So maybe it's just time to think about how to make things a bit better, because I think well, we've got the talent. Well, I, I, before, before we run off with Macaulay's thoughts on the constitution, I, I, I'm going to bring us back to you, if I may, Gavin, because the other thing um, that I guess is is another big column of interest in your life is writing. I mean, you've described, you've been quoted as saying that writing is, is in my blood. And in your lockdown list, accompanies this episode, you said that the book that inspired you the most was all of them. So let's talk about writing um, for you and, and actually literature. Uh, well, I mean, I, I am a 
a voracious reader. I've just finished this morning, actually, Sergei Lebedev's Untraceable, which is about a brilliant yeah. novel about, about Russia. Let me see what else I've got on my desk. This, this was not put here for you. Hard Choices by Peter Ricketts, What Britain Does Next. Uh, hard Interviews. Uh, hard, hard Choices, a very interesting book. Peter Ricketts for 40 years, top of the Foreign Office, National Security Advisor. And I read every word and thought, this, this, this guy knows his stuff. So... Yeah, it's important it, to me to read and is to it, write. Is, is that a lifelong interest or, or have you found that the pandemic has had a difference? I mean, I, I for one, found, I found that I'm reading so much more in the pandemic. I've, 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 kind of, I've reawakened my love of reading in a way that I haven't felt for a number of years. I mean, I'm just wondering, has this just been a lifelong discipline or, or actually is there something different? Well, there, were, there was one thing that was different, which actually slightly worried me, which was that during the pandemic, I found I couldn't read novels with the same enjoyment. I could read mm. non-fiction. I read a lot of non-fiction books, uh, including, well, it's not here, but there's a, there's, a, there's a book that's a thousand pages long uh, by Norman Davis called The Isles, which is the history of, of Britain, uh, uh, Britain and Ireland. And I've, I read all those with enjoyment, but trying to, I read all those with enjoyment, but trying to submerse myself during the pandemic in fiction. I just found it quite what, trivial, what, which what is was, strange. Why you saw fiction as trivial? I mean, yeah, which I never, I never do, and I'm, I'm back reading. It. I mean, Untraceable is, uh, is, mm. some, uh, is a Russian, Russian story, the one I, I've just, just finished. So, I, I don't know what it was. I've not really figured it out, but I did find it very difficult. I tried quite a few books, and I also tried because I'm on the BAFTA, BAFTA jury for films. I found the same with films, actually. Uh, well, in a, in a different way. This is, it, it, I have not managed to process this yet. But what I found was that there were so many brilliant films, like Nomadland, for example, uh, mm. which I really, really thought were terrific, or the, or the Chicago Seven and, and, and others. But I kind of longed for a rubbish rom-com. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when, 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 you, when, you, when you see this, and, and I'm not denigrating Nomadland in any way, but when you're in the middle of a pandemic, the last thing you want is to watch a film about a woman living in a camper van. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So, so do you think there, there has been that, that sort of relationship with the stress, I guess, that the world is living through and actually how things like our relationship with, with literature and, and film and, and actually... You know, it'd be interesting in the years to come whether people can make sense of how we responded to our, you know, using our downtime, I guess, in terms of how we might have traditionally used it for reading, reading films. So a lot of people don't want to watch violent movies anymore, do they? Because they, they just don't, yeah. they just feel the world is too, just too grim and dark at the moment. Yeah, I, I must say I watched with my children quite a lot of Harry Potter, so yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which is quite fun. I mean, even the Dementors made me a bit, you know, um, I, uh, I think. I think when something very, very big happens, I think when uh, when a war happens, I assume, or uh, uh, certainly with the pandemic. I mean, I, I I've read uh, Camus La Peste a couple of times, and the last thing I wanted to read was another book about mm. plague. And I've got I've got Love in a Time of Cholera somewhere here, and I thought, nah, no, I'm not, I'm not, I can't even. I can't. It's years since I read that, and I can't remember yeah, entirely a, what it's about. But just it's suddenly, great, it's, the it's title read. But, it is a great read, but, but I just didn't fancy opening it. And, and what about writing for you? I mean, because that's a that's a big part. Because you know, you've written fiction, nonfiction. I mean, in terms of how that helps you in your life journey, how, how what, what what about the process of writing? Well, there's a, there's a sort of famous American intellectual, Daniel Burson, who once said he used to get up apparently at five in the morning and used to write for an hour. And one of the reasons he said, even if nobody read it, he said that I write so I know what I think. Mm. 
And I think that's actually quite, I don't quite do that, but, but actually I absolutely see what he means. So that mm-hmm. sometimes I start with an idea for something and I don't really know what it's about until I write it. And I found that with, with the book, actually, that the How Britain Ends book, I, I found it easier to write the book than to write a treatment for the book to sit, give to the publisher to tell them what it was about. Is that, so, does that make sense? It does, it does make sense because a, a number of the authors that, that I've interviewed on, on the show will often talk about actually it's quite important to approach the blank sheet of paper, as it were, in terms of letting your imagination and your mind unfold rather than just feeling you've got to go and have a quite a narrow experience so that actually there is something about just the just the art of writing the art of turning up but also i guess the discipline of getting to it you know that that seems to me an important part of successful authors is that you know that that they do have to like exercise they have to repeat the yeah. process to keep it going just, yeah it, you, you sorry you wouldn't i was just going to say that sorry to interrupt but i was just going to say you wouldn't say you're a plumber if you don't do any plumbing you know yeah. <laughs> or you, you wouldn't say you're a, a, a lorry driver if you don't drive lorries so it, I've got an old friend, Bernard Cornwall, who's written a lot of brilliant mm, books. Great. And Bernard, Bernard used to say, oh, writer, I asked him about writer's block years ago. And he said, writer's block, you're telling me my job is far too important. You can't expect me to possibly to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, just because just we're, we're so sadly almost running out of time, but it strikes me that you are a real all-rounder, Gavin. You know, because if you, if you think about it, you know, some people remember you for... Newsnight, you've mentioned the BAFTAs. Of course, you've done so much about the big screen and film. You've written both fiction, non-fiction. You've stood for political office. You've stood, I mean, you're now a, a vice chancellor, sorry, a chancellor, excuse me, at, at University of Kent. It strikes me that variety is, is the spice of life for you. <laughs> maybe maybe it's because I haven't found anything that I'm really good at yet. I, I, I'm, I'm planning maybe to do the World Downhill Skiing Championship or, uh, I don't know, what, swim winter, the channel. Winter, winter Olympics. Winter club. Olympics, that's maybe my forte. And just a final word on, on you know, you've described your, your, your dad and, and your wife as your, as your biggest in, inspirations. I mean, is that part of sort of, I guess, a centering in on family as being the things that really do motivate you? Yeah, uh, that's that's absolutely right. It's uh, it's not something that I would have thought of when I was a teenager. Let's put it that way. You, can, you just mm. sort of take certain things for granted. But as you get older, it does seem to me that you do think, "What have I missed out on most? Have I missed out on, you know, filing an extra story for a news bulletin, or have I missed out on a daughter's birthday uh, or a son's birthday?" And I think those things are you can't replace those actually. And mm. I, it, it takes. It's taken me a while. I'm not saying I've grown into great wisdom, but it's taken me a while from to recognise that. Gavin Esler, thank you very much for joining me on Changemakers. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating? 